This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions by Astra Taylor. Taylor's collected essays address some of the most pressing social problems of our day, from automation to climate catastrophe and the future of the university. You can find Remake the World at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK will receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The COVID-19 pandemic may have been a disaster for humanity, but it's been a great boon for the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. Over the last year, CNBC has given pride a place to the COVID vaccine when talking about Pfizer's quarterly earnings. Pfizer is forecasting $15 billion in revenue from its COVID vaccine uh, this year. Uh, Now, it says in terms um, of the COVID vaccine community, they see $32 billion in 2022 sales. That's up $3 billion from what they projected last quarter, and that's based on revenue was $25.7 billion. Analysts had been looking for $23.9 billion. Company reiterating its full-year revenue forecast of $98 billion to $102 billion in revenue. That's despite unfavorable impacts from foreign exchange. Our reliance on Big Pharma for life-saving vaccines has reminded us how badly we need to understand the links between science, politics and commercial interests. For Marxists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these were some of the most important questions to be addressed in their work. The cross-fertilisation between Marxism and science had major implications for the development of both. Our guest today is Helena Sheehan. She's an emeritus professor at Dublin City University and the author of Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, a book that traces the history of this encounter. What connection did Marx and Engels see between their own work and the developments in the natural sciences at the time? Well, Marx and Engels were acutely attuned to the science of their day. They saw it as a kind of rolling revelation of the world. And they constantly were writing to each other about what various discoveries, which were coming very fast in the 19th century, about what they meant. And they were struck by three discoveries above all. One was the discovery of cellular structure, which they thought demonstrated the unity of the organic world. Then there was the discovery of the law of conservation and transformation of energy, which they thought revealed nature as a continuous and dynamic process. But most of all, Uh, the discovery of evolution of the species, which they saw as demonstrating the natural origins of natural history. They were particularly enthusiastic about Darwinism and the implications of evolution in both the natural world and the historical sphere. Now, this took place within a massive shift in mood as the 19th century saw a general transition from seeing the world as a static and timeless order of nature to viewing nature as more of a developmental and temporal process. And Marx and Engels, uh, as part of this and within this whole atmosphere, pushed the theory of evolution of species further into a theory of the evolution of everything and explored the implications of this in formulating a philosophy that came to be called dialectical materialism. What were the most significant arguments that Engels made in his work, which was published posthumously, uh, Dialectics of Nature? 
Well, Dialectics of Nature was a posthumously published and unfinished manuscript of Engels, uh, which he meant to be a major work elucidating the philosophical implications of the natural sciences. So when he died, parts of it were fully written and other parts of it were sketchy. Some of the science uh, has been superseded, but on the other hand, some of it actually anticipated scientific discoveries that only came later. Uh, but the core of it was his methodology, which was an epistemology and ontology of a new materialism, a materialism that was dynamic and fluid, one that saw the world as an interconnected totality, as opposed to an older materialism that was mechanistic and reductionist. And this, the, the epistemology and ontology were also in contrast to various idealist tendencies. There are two separate arguments that could be made and which have been made about the attempt by Engels to extend the scope of Marxism beyond the limits of human history. And one is to say that you simply can't come up with any general principles that would apply to the history of the universe and also to human history. Whereas the second is to say that the particular set of principles that Engels did come up with were unhelpful and misconceived. What's your opinion of those two arguments? Well, I disagree with both arguments. I think it's impossible to think coherently or even to live coherently without working out a comprehensive worldview that encompasses everything. So Marx and Engels believe this. They repudiated the idea that there was one basis for science and another for life. Although some later Marxists tried to blend Marxism with uh, various other philosophies, such as neo-Kantianism, uh, with its sharp dividing line between nature and history, the mainstream of Marxism, with which I identify, has held on to a more holistic approach in thinking about both the natural world and human history. So those pulling in the other direction, and I mean here um, Austro-Marxists, uh, the Frankfurt School, the Praxis School, also much of the 1960s New Left, um, have tended to align natural science with positivism and to leave natural science to the positivists. But the best of Marxism, uh, I think, uh, from Marx and Engels on, developed a critique of positivism as well as a non-positivist philosophy of science. So I believe that politics needs to be grounded in a worldview that's coherent and comprehensive and empirically grounded. And I believe that science is crucial to this as the cutting edge of empirically grounded knowledge. So, I mean, of course, uh, people get involved in politics sometimes on the basis of particular issues, and we can work with people with whom we disagree on other issues. However, I think that we need an intellectual tradition and a political movement that pulls it all together. And as I discovered in my own journey, and as I hope I conveyed in this book, there's a brilliant intellectual tradition tied to a political movement doing this, and that's Marxism. In recent decades, the biologist Stephen Jay Gould was one of the great scientific popularizers. Gould was very complimentary about Friedrich Engels and his scientific writings. According to Gould, Engels had captured a vital point about the history of human evolution in one of his essays. In his own public work, Gould was a strong opponent of biological determinism. In the following clip, he argues against pseudo-scientific justifications for racial inequality. The human mind just doesn't work very well with certain questions. We're very bad at probability. We're always making these dichotomous divisions of things into two. 
One of the things we're very bad at is, is when we're faced with something that's very complex, as intelligence is, because it involves lots of different independent abilities, the relationship between hereditary and environment, and all these complex questions, we have this terrible tendency to try and make things simple, try and get a single number. There's a whole history in subject after subject of trying to encompass complex and, and independent attributes with a single number. Uh, my colleague uh, Medawar, for example, once wrote a very interesting article showing how in soil science, in this totally different field, people f for decades got hung up on trying to get a single number to measure the quality of soil. Now, how can you do that? There's no such thing as the quality of soil. This one is 51. This one is 76.2. There, there isn't. There are just different things that soils can do. The same, now, the human mind is even more complex. There is no number that can capture the quality of mind. And it's almost humorous to think that there is. But unfortunately, the assumption that we can do such a thing tied to the use of such theories by conservative social ideologies has had profoundly negative consequences for the lives of millions of people. There are millions of people, particularly in this country, who've been told they can't do this, who've been denied admission to this or that program on the basis of a number, which was falsely interpreted as representing an intrinsic limit upon them based on their biology, but was in fact only a measure of social influences upon their lives. What were the main trends in Soviet philosophy and science during the first decade of the revolution? And how did they interact? Well, I found this period uh, when I discovered it and, and began researching it really exciting. Because in the first decade of the revolution, there were debates about everything, absolutely everything, about industrialization strategy and its relation to the collectivization of agriculture about nationalities policy, about the nature of the state and the status of law under socialism, about the liberation of women, the future of the family and free love, about avant-garde art and architecture, about various educational theories, uh, about the idea of proletarian culture. There were debates within every academic discipline, which also obviously involved debates about philosophy, science and philosophy of science. And the most interesting of all of these debates were actually between the Bolsheviks themselves. So the debate about philosophy of science was a complex philosophical and political struggle with much higher stakes than most intellectual debates. At one level, there was a debate about the relative emphasis on Hegel and more generally about the history of philosophy versus the stress on the natural sciences. There are accusations on the one side of reversion to idealism, or on the other side, of reversion to mechanistic materialism, both of which were superseded by Marxism. So there's always been a kind of tension in Marxist philosophy, uh, in the history of Marxism, but this debate was supercharged by its implications in complex historical currents and a complex struggle for power within the USSR. So in 1931, there was a closing down of these debates and a push to accept one position in all of these different debates as the Marxist position. Uh, and it was not only a matter of who was making the most convincing arguments in these debates, but who would get university positions or who would be on editorial boards, but also on who might be purged. So in philosophy, a group of young philosophers went to Stalin, and their position was a kind of synthesis between the two positions, 
which I believe made sense philosophically, uh, but it was also complicated by uh, ambition and opportunism, as is often the case. So when I was in Moscow uh, doing research on this, I interviewed Mark Meeting, who was the most prominent of these young philosophers. And he argued that the philosophical debates didn't have political consequences, although my research told me otherwise. But what's important um, about, about these debates is to see them in a wider context. Uh, and in my book, I've, I've dealt with the whole cluster of debates, uh, particularly this one in philosophy, as well as the other debates in the natural sciences, which had many, many factors uh, swirling around each other. And of course, the one in biology uh, was particularly fierce and consequential. What impact did the Soviet delegation that came to London in 1931 for a scientific conference have on the development of British science? Well, the appearance of a Soviet delegation at the Second International History of Science Congress in London in 1931 was actually the first appearance of a Soviet delegation at a major international academic congress. So for this alone, it created quite a stir. And the stir was not only at the Congress itself, but also in the mass media at the time. And uh, it also also coming from this uh, was a book called Science at the Crossroads, where the Soviet papers were published. And it was translated into many languages and, and also many editions uh, and circulated all over the world and, and is, in fact, still being read today. So this delegation was led by Nikolai Bukharin. Uh, who was once a contender to, to succeed Lenin, his appearance at the 1931 History of Science Congress was midway down his trajectory uh, in, in terms of um, his position in the power structure. Bukharin and the rest came forward uh, at this Congress with a really fresh and vigorous proclamation of Marxism as an integrating philosophy that made more sense of science than anything else on the horizon. And it had a lasting impact, uh, particularly on the leftist scientists who were present, such as Bernal, Haldane, Needham, and others who were actually major figures, not only in British science at the time, but also in the international science at the time. One member of the Soviet delegation who had an especially strong impact was Boris Hessen. Hessen delivered a paper that connected the scientific ideas of Isaac Newton to English social development. His argument became a landmark in the historiography of science. In our own time, the television series Cosmos brought the findings of scientific research to a combined audience of half a billion people. Its presenter, Carl Sagan, linked science to history and made no attempt to conceal his own egalitarian politics. In this clip from the show, Sagan argued that slavery in the ancient Greek world had hampered the development of science. The mercantile tradition which had led to Ionian science also led to a slave economy. You could get richer if you owned a lot of slaves. Athens, in the time of Plato and Aristotle, had a vast slave population. All of that brave Athenian talk about democracy applied only to a privileged few. Plato and Aristotle were comfortable in a slave society. They offered justifications for oppression they served tyrants. They taught the alienation of the body from the mind, a natural enough idea, I suppose, in a slave society. They separated thought from matter. They divorced the earth from the heavens. Divisions which were to dominate Western thinking 
for more than 20 centuries. The Pythagoreans had won. In the recognition by Pythagoras and Plato that the cosmos is knowable, that there is a mathematical underpinning to nature, they greatly advanced the cause of science. But in the suppression of disquieting facts, the sense that science should be kept for a small elite, the distaste for experiment, the embrace of mysticism, the easy acceptance of slave societies, their influence has significantly set back the human endeavour. When Sagan was interviewed by Ted Turner in 1989, Turner asked him about his political views. But are you a socialist? Uh, I'm not sure what a socialist is. Well, but, I I believe that the, but I believe that the government has a responsibility to care for the people. I'm not talking about dole. I'm talking about making people self-reliant, people able to take care of themselves. There are countries which are perfectly able to do that. The United States is an extremely rich country. It's perfectly able to do that. It chooses not to. It chooses to have homeless people. It chooses... It's, we are 19th in the world in infant mortality. 18 other countries save the lives of their babies better than we. How come? They just spend more money on it. They care about their babies more than we care about ours. I think it's a disgrace. And uh, this country has vast wealth. You just look at what something like uh, Star Wars, the money spent on Star Wars, already spent $20 billion on it. If these guys are permitted to go ahead, they will spend a trillion dollars on Star Wars. Think of what that money could be used for to educate, to help, to bring people up to a sense of, of uh, self-confidence, to improve not just the happiness of people in America, but their economic standing, to improve the competitiveness of the United States compared to other countries. We are using money for the wrong stuff. What did J.D. Bernal and J.B.S. Haldane in particular take from Marxism for their scientific work? And how did they understand the relationship between politics, philosophy and science? Basically, what they took from Marxism was philosophical integrality and social purpose. They saw Marxism as the key to integrating the various results of the natural sciences to form a coherent picture of the natural world, and then beyond that, for connecting nature to history to connecting science to political economy. Both uh, Bernal and Haldane wrote massive philosophical and historical works about science, as well as continuing their leading role in basic science, while also organizing a movement for social responsibility in science. Now, Bernal saw Marxism as extending scientific method to the whole range of phenomena, from the smallest particle to the whole shape of human history. He saw science as a social activity, integrally tied to the whole spectrum of other social activities, economic, political, cultural, philosophical. He contrasted science under capitalism with science under socialism, and he believed that the frustration of science was an inescapable feature of the capitalist mode of production, and that science could achieve its full potential only under socialism. So Haldane also had such a synthesizing approach, extending beyond science, reaching for a theory of everything from the beginning of time to the end of the world. And he found this in Marxism. 
He saw Marxism as scientific method applied to society, extending the unity to all knowledge, analyzing the same basic processes in nature and society. For Haldane, as for Bernal, there was no hermetic boundary between science and politics. And he thought those who thought otherwise were deluded. Uh, one time he said that even if the professors leave politics alone, politics won't leave the professors alone. Haldane was one of the pioneers of scientific writing for a popular audience. In the following clip, Haldane's nephew, the zoologist Avrian Mitchison, discusses his experience of writing about science for the British communist press. His other big thing, besides looking at papers for the Journal of Genetics and doing his own mathematics, was writing popular science. And he did that in semi-popular books. Causes of Evolution is a semi-popular book. But uh, um, his, his big thing was writing a column for The Daily Worker. And Jack always said that he learned how to write English. I'm sure he learned most of it when he was a schoolboy at Eton. But after that, he learned how to write succinct English by being edited by William Rust, the editor of The Daily Worker. What were the subject matters? Science. Always. It was always popular science with a, wherever possible, a left-wing cast. During the Second World War, the British government recruited John Desmond Bernal to bring his scientific knowledge to the war effort. One minister said he wanted Bernal on board, even if he is as red as the flames of hell. Bernal helped devise the plan to construct artificial harbours that played a crucial role in the Normandy landings, as this newsreel explained. These pictures just released tell the story of one of the mightiest of engineering feats a feat that has revolutionized modern warfare. Vast artificial harbors, secretly prefabricated in Britain by thousands of workers, helped to make possible the invasion of Normandy. Two fully equipped ports, as large and impregnable as Gibraltar, with huge steel and concrete cassoons looking like floating blocks of flats, these were built in seven months and towed to Normandy in sections three days after our landings. Wrecked landing craft were blown up with depth charges to clear the channel. The vastness of the operation took the Germans completely by surprise. They didn't believe it possible to carry through a great invasion without large ports in our possession to disembark troops and supplies. And they were right. But what they did not realize was that the ports were already completed down to the last detail and only waiting to be assembled off the Normandy beaches. It was this miscalculation that stopped the enemy from bringing his full weight to bear against our forces during those first vital weeks after our landings. By then it was too late. For within a month, despite the worst June gales for 40 years, one of the harbours was in working order. You've argued that Christopher Caldwell, who wasn't a professional scientist, made a strikingly original contribution to the philosophy of science in his book, The Crisis in Physics. What were some of the key points that Caldwell put across? Well, Caldwell uh, was an autodidact not only not a professional scientist, he wasn't an academic and he didn't even attend university. Um, he was a loner uh, for most of his short life, but he read voluminously and was 
relentlessly searching for a coherent and comprehensive worldview, which he too ultimately found uh, in Marxism. And he didn't simply take it off the shelf, but he made it his own in a really fresh and original way across many areas, encompassing not only science, but philosophy and culture. He also joined the Communist Party uh, and threw himself into party work. And as you mentioned, went to fight in the Spanish Civil War where he died. Um, And this was a a really terrible loss to Marxism, that this really brilliant figure died so young. And I, I feel very mournful every time I think about him, which is quite often. He wrote with great clarity, passion and profundity, with the same sort of integrality as Bernal and Haldane. He addressed the theoretical fragmentation, which he found in all disciplines, and he argued that it was rooted in a crisis in bourgeois culture. He said that at the root of its most basic thought patterns was the subject-object dichotomy, which had its basis in the social division of labor, in the separation of the class that generated the dominant ideology from the class that actively engaged with nature. And he thought that it distorted art, science, psychology, philosophy, economic, and indeed all social relations. So he he argued that there have been great empirical advances in genetics, evolution, quantum mechanics, uh, etc. But at the same time, there was an inability to synthesize the meaning of these discoveries. He analyzed the crisis in physics in terms of the metaphysics of physics. He displayed a really acute grasp of theoretical physics, in particular, the tensions between relativity and quantum theory. And he argued that physics was advancing along the empirical front and generating a growing body of knowledge that could not be fit into the existing theoretical frameworks and was rent by the same dualisms as all other intellectual disciplines. He also analyzed the crisis uh, in biology and the tensions uh, between genetics and and evolution, between heredity and development, equally brilliantly. Um, He was really quite an extraordinary figure. What impact did the purges under Stalin have on the Soviet scientific community, including some of those who had gone to London in 1931? Well, it was tragic. Um, It was tragic for uh, Soviet science. It was uh, tragic for Soviet society. Soviet society became caught up in a terrible spiral where truth-seeking seriousness got caught up with compulsion, paranoia, ignorance, slander, revenge, deceit, and indeed a a brutal struggle for political power. Several of those who so fervently stood up for Marxism at the 1931 Congress, Bukharin, Hessin, Vavilov, uh, were portrayed as conspiring against the revolution and perished in the purges. Bukharin was the leading Bolshevik economist, In this clip from a British documentary about the life of Nikolai Bukharin, Fitzroy Maclean describes his trial in 1938. Maclean observed the trial as a diplomat in Moscow. It was quite easy to recognise Bukharin. He looked, for one thing, much more of an intellectual than the others did. His intelligence shone out from his eyes. And then he also, he had a palish complexion and he had a little beard that made him look a little like his friend Lenin. 
the beginning of the trial, uh, of course, people were relaxed and uh, waving to their friends and uh, laughing and uh, talking. But once it started, there was an atmosphere of pretty good tension because after all, these men were being tried for their lives. One of the things that sticks in my memory is how fit and smart the special security guards looked uh, guarding the dock and how comparatively grey and seedy the, the um, prisoners looked. Bukharin conducted himself uh, with great dignity. He was, of course, immensely superior to anyone else there in character, moral character, intellect and everything else. He had been one of the makers of the revolution and uh, he'd been a close friend of Lenin's and uh, he'd been a gold medalist at the university. He also knew the outside world in a way that people like Stalin didn't. And for all those reasons, in spite of his terrible predicament that he was in, and he knew perfectly well that he wouldn't come out of this alive, uh, he did manage to dominate the proceedings in the most extraordinary way, rather to the discomfiture of uh, Vyshinsky and the judges. Uh, the proceedings were filmed right through, as far as I remember. Uh, they had these, uh, up by the dock, they, they, they had these arc lights and uh, movie cameras. And uh, there was one extraordinary episode during the trial when the man, poor man who, who was operating the uh, arc lights, let it get out of control. And it shot right up and threw its beam of light onto that little middle window up there. And through the dark glass, we, we could recognize the features of Stalin gloating over his former colleagues. It was, it was very dramatic indeed. Now, the purges uh, are often put down to uh, Stalin becoming a megalomaniac, which I don't deny, but um, I don't think that this is a sufficient explanation. I think it's necessary to understand the complex forces in motion, the monumental nature of what the Soviet Union was trying to achieve, uh, particularly in that period of the first five-year plan, and the massive obstacles in their path, and the frenzy that resulted from this cauldron. What was the nature of what became rather infamous, the Lysenko controversy in Soviet biology? Well, this was part of that monumental struggle and the resulting frenzy. The Lysenko controversy is often portrayed as a cautionary tale against ideological interference in science. Uh, but I don't see it this way. The relation of ideology to science is complex and eliminating ideology to get pure science is not possible or even desirable, in my opinion. Now, the controversy has to be understood in terms of what forces were in motion at the time. Uh, first of all, the tensions in mainstream international science uh, between genetics and evolution. The contemporary synthesis had not, between genetics and evolution, which we, which we take for granted now, was not in place then. And as well as the particular tensions and problems in the science, uh, the international science of the 1920s and 1930s, uh, there was a longer and larger tension, which went on before and after that, between heredity and environment. How much of, of what we are is there by heredity and how much is determined by environment? This is still going on. And also there's a whole history 
which played into this particular set of debates, um, of ideological positioning associating the right with one pole and the left with the other. And this played out in a very forceful way in, in the Soviet Union. So on top of this, um, these international intellectual tensions, there were specific tensions in Soviet intellectual life. There was a need to create a new Soviet intelligentsia, the problem of how to deal with bourgeois expertise, the problems of meeting uh, the very ambitious targets of the first five-year plan, particularly the problem of how to raise the productivity of Soviet agriculture. So T.G. Lysenko walked into this, these, all these swirling tensions. Um, he was a Ukrainian agronomist uh, who came to prominence with an agricultural technique called vernalization that allowed winter crops to be generated from summer planting. Now, he pushed forward from this to articulate a whole theory of biology, basically a theory of inheritance of acquired characteristics and a denunciation of genetics. In terms of international science, it was basically a Lamarckist position versus a Mendelian one. Now, this coincided with the frenzy of the purges and authorities proclaimed the Lysenkoist position to be the correct Marxist position in biology with tragic consequences um, for science and scientists, particularly for genetics and geneticists. And Vavilov, um, whom, whom I mentioned um, just a few minutes ago, he was an internationally uh, renowned geneticist who was one of those who came to the 1931 History of Science Congress. Uh, he perished in the purges. Few left-wing intellectuals in the world today have written about the natural sciences with the same depth of knowledge as Mike Davis. As many of you may have heard, Mike's family announced last week that he's ended his treatment programme for cancer. Everyone who's learnt so much from his extraordinary books and essays will be wishing him the very best. In this interview with Democracy Now! from May 2020, he identified global capitalism as a mortal threat to the future of humanity. In four ways, it's become a threat to human survival. It can't guarantee food security or increase the output of food by the 50% the United Nations says is necessary to feed uh, humanity 20 years from now. It no longer creates jobs or guarantees people income or a meaningful social role. It cannot decarbonize the economy or at the same time allow the poor countries which didn't create the greenhouse gases to make the great adaptations that are necessary for their survival. And finally, we're in the midst of a revolution in biological design, genomics. It cannot translate this biological revolution, the enormous potential that exists now, into public health, either in this country and, of course, even less around the world. What do you think are the most important legacies from this historical period for the way that we think about science and about politics today? Well, I think what has weathered every storm are the core concepts uh, of Marxism in its approach to science. Now, there have been many debates about Marxism vis-a-vis other approaches. But as I see it, having studied all of these debates, both before I came, the whole history of the debates before I came onto the scene and also the debates that have uh, run during my own lifetime. I believe that nothing makes so much sense of science as Marxism. 
nothing makes so much sense of everything um, as Marxism. So I want to say clearly here just what is distinctive about Marxism as a philosophy of science. It's materialist in the sense of explaining the natural world in terms of natural forces and not supernatural powers. It's dialectical in the sense of being evolutionary, processive, developmental. It's radically contextual and relational in seeing everything that exists within an interacting web of forces in which it's embedded. It's empiricist without being positivist or reductionist. It's rationalist without being idealist. It's coherent and comprehensive while being empirically grounded. It's an integral philosophy. It's a way of seeing the world in terms of a complex pattern of interconnecting processes where others see it only as disconnected and static particulars. It's a way of revealing how all forces in motion are products of a pattern of historical development shaped by a mode of production. It sees science as socially constructed, but at the same time, as an empirically grounded revelation of the natural world. So throughout uh, this, the whole period of its history, Marxism uh, rises and falls in its status and its influence. And this, this period now is not particularly a high point. Uh, however, I think that there is a revival of Marxist philosophy of science. Uh, and I think it's in response to the exigencies of ecological crisis and also in, in response to the current pandemic, which is, is still playing out. And by the way, although there's an atmosphere of the pandemic being over, this particular pandemic isn't over. And one thing that I think is being reinforced by anyone who dealt seriously with this pandemic, which is mostly Marxist, is that the conditions are still there. Uh, for further and future pandemics. So uh, I think that it's as relevant and as important today as ever it was, perhaps even more so. So I think that Marxism needs to be constantly updated, uh, developed further, move forward. I always thought that there were areas where it was weak, such as psychology, although the foundations were there to make it superior to any other contending position in psychology. But even in areas where it was most developed, such as political economy, uh, the world is constantly changing, indeed changing at an ever-accelerating rate. So there's always much to do. And I think that Marxism has showed itself to have this kind of dynamic capacity, and it still is developing further. So I think that in its basic concepts, it's still the most coherent, comprehensive, and well-grounded philosophy on the horizon. Whether or not it's popular, it's right, and I still see it as the unsurpassed philosophy of our time. Many thanks to Helena Sheehan for giving us that introduction to the history of Marxism and science. If you'd like to know more about the subject, her book Marxism and the Philosophy of Science has been republished by Verso.